here we are. We are the Data Protection Breakfast Club with our friend Trevor Hughes, the CEO of IAPP. Your dog, Keanu. He's going nuts, man. He's Keanu having like the craziest day. When, during the conversation with Trevor, people should look out for a time when you go close the door and then your dog comes right back in. <laughs> He's so annoying. Like, why is he like, look at this. Why is he like this today? You know what it is? Okay, buddy, okay. He had surgery in his mouth last week. They had to, he had a cyst and he had some stitches and like, he's just not getting enough playtime. And this is the result of a Hungarian Vishwan not giving playtime. So um, yeah, I'll try to manage him as best as I can. But if I put him in the crate, he'll just bark the whole time. No, so no. that's not going to be the way. We'll go, yeah. we'll go quick and you can, you can take him out, you know? Yeah. But hey man, we got, so good, we, we got a pretty good guest today. <laughs> we have a good guest today. We had a great conversation. Uh, can't wait to share it with everybody. Trevor uh, is the CEO of IAPP, which is the the, the leading body in privacy. Sixty five thousand members um, does certifications. You and I both have CIPP, US, and EU. Um, you know they have technical ones. They have management uh, certifications. A great place to get started. Um, my, the first person I ever knew that had one was the, my boss, the chief privacy officer at, at TD Ameritrade. And I was like, I saw it on his wall. I was like, what is that? What's the IAPP? And on the wall, huh? Okay. And he had it framed in his office. Nice. <laughs> nice. This was like 2011. <laughs> yeah. Well, around that time, I went, I don't know how exactly how long I've had my, it's been a while now. Um, Man, I gotta be honest, I didn't know anybody. I didn't even know what it was when I started researching this. I was at the firm and my boss, you know, had kind of given me the green light to like go explore privacy as a practice area for the firm. And I was in the corporate group and um, we gotta get Dennis on here. He's such an interesting person. He's not a privacy guy, but he, I'm not a privacy person without Dennis Ali, like who absolutely was like, had a vision for me. And it, I, hopefully I've lived up to kind of his expectations, but um, he was like, go figure out how to do this. We've got clients who need help, right? And I was like, okay. And so I went and I started doing research, came across the IAPP, obviously much smaller back then. And then saw these certifications. I think back then the only ones they had was CIPP, US, and EU. Like, I think that was it. They didn't, I don't think they, did they have EU? I'm not even sure they had I don't even EU. think they had EU. I, I think oh, you're right. Wow. I, I'm not sure. It, either they just had gotten it or still wasn't out. And um, I was like, holy shit, well, I better get to work on this. And I remember I bought the two little books and they mailed them to me. Um, I'd never been to a conference. I'm in Miami, man. So like, it's, a, it's about as far from like the, privacy mecca as can be and um i get these books and i'm just like studying at night and like fips and like all these kind of like classic you know fair information privacy principles and these kind of things um and then i went and took this test andy and it was like at a test center like in this awful neighborhood in miami right with like a proctor and this old shitty computer and I honestly don't remember what my score was, but I remember feeling tremendous relief because it was like the first, I mean, obviously we're, me and you are lawyers and we've got like the lawyer credential, but like it was, it was my first professional kind of credential. Like I was like, okay, and now I got some letters, you know, it's my letters. <laughs> it's, it's uh, the certification is really just the doorway into this. Right. And we talk a lot about this with Trevor. It's the doorway into this incredible community. And for him, <clears throat> for him, uh, an incredible story of growing from like 300, 300 members up to what it is now, which is 65,000, which is a crazy yeah. number. And, 
um, super interesting story. And um, he's so, he mentioned also that he thought about being a history teacher at one point. <laughs> interesting <laughs> grasp of history though. He has the his, the grasp of history on on privacy as well as the world, and he's yes. he's melded those two into this into into his career and current events. It's super interesting. And, um, yeah, and what you know, what's interesting about Trevor too is like, yeah, he has a good lens for history and a good appreci appreciation for it. Um, but he's also here since the beginning. Like, it, you know, like not only does he appreciate it, he makes it right. Like, you know, I, I know we met, we talk we talk about Harriet Pearson with him a little bit, but and Alan Weston and some of these like you know founding you know leaders of our profession. Um, he's definitely one of the in that in that very elite small group of doing the Jules Polonetsky, like these types of folks, like in that very small group of doing it when this wasn't a thing to do. Like, you know, and that takes some courage. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm excited to hear more about, like, more of the details as to, like, how he got to 65000 from, you know, uh, you know, uh, 50 bucks and, like, a newsletter, you know? <laughs> you know? Well, so so without without delay, here it is. Let's do it. All right, here we are, Data Protection Breakfast Club with Trevor Hughes, the CEO of IAPP. Uh, someone we've known for a little while now, and we're really excited to have you here. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. Good morning to you both. Good morning to you. Um, you, you selected this song. This is uh, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. I've got Corey Hart behind me. If you all haven't seen this video in a while, you, you should watch it. It is amazing. Did you all watch, also did you all watch it recently? I watched it like I haven't watched it recently. Yeah, it's a good video, man. It's a good video. <laughs> it's very dystopian <laughs> in a very Pretty. strange way. It's yeah, relevant. I, I for just I, listen. Listen, I, I just want to start with an explanation, and that is, first of all, I was no massive fan back in the '80s. I actually would have had significant disdain for Corey Hart. Um, but given the context of everything, as a Canadian, as uh, as someone, and you guys tasked me with picking, you know, a song emblematic of the era, I thought Corey Hart, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night, was as embarrassing a pop culture <laughs> phenomenon as I could. And so, and so we, we, you know, I'm not sure if many Canadians will own up to the fact that Corey Hart is in fact one of ours, but, um, but indeed he is. So, uh, yeah, and it, it, look, sunglasses at night, it seemed to, to have some relevance. It's, it's a funny reflection against sort of something that, that you've talked about a lot, which is the comparison between privacy and art. And it's not exactly the art we always, we were thinking about. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but, but it's true. That's right. It's That's true. right. So Pedro, yeah. do you, Pedro, you usually have an, op an opening um, query for, for the guest. Do you have one or today? I do. First of all, I think we should, just speaking about sunglasses, like I think it'd be very Kanye West of us to wear sunglasses for the rest of the season, just because. So we might <laughs> need to consider that on the episodes. Um, but uh, I do. And Trevor, first of all, like Andy said, like super thanks for being with us. This is this is cool for us on our podcast. Um, well, the last week's been exciting, and uh, so so I'm going to go right to the heart of the matter. I'm not going to ask you a political question, but um, tying it somehow to privacy. One of the things I've seen over the last week is 
you know, obviously all of the large platforms, including the one I work for, making changes to try to curtail some of the misinformation and like insightful speech that's uh, kind of uh, adding fuel to the fire, if you will, out there in uh, in the country, in the U.S. specifically. Um, as a result of the changes that some of the platforms have made, a lot of the speech seems to be going to like more secure venues. Like the like like I don't think the conversations that are creating some of the fervor are disappearing. I think they're just going into the darkness. Um, from a privacy perspective, Trevor, like I'm trying to ask this question as like gently as possible, but like, what are your thoughts on whether or not we need to think about encryption again in light of what's happened in the last couple of, in the last yeah, week sure. or so? Um, and like, just generally, Feel free to chime in on any part of anything I just said, but like that specific question yeah, sure. is what I'm the most interested in. Yeah, go ahead. Well, so you know, first of all, what a shocking and saddening week, and and there are so many things, and I think I, like many, have found myself just incredibly distracted over yeah. the past week, and it's been hard to focus. Um, but like so many things in the world today, uh, whenever something major happens, it almost immediately. Um, uh, is apparent that there is a privacy intersection, that there's a connection to our world. Um, and so let me just go down a quick list. And I think there's a few. First of all, um, last Wednesday, two senators from Georgia got elected and they're both Democrats, which gives the Dems uh, control of the Senate. That changes the nature of our discussion about uh, national privacy legislation. So that's a big deal. That's a big privacy uh, uh, issue and, and that's a big deal. In the wake of the insurrection of the violence in, uh, in Washington DC last week, I think we have seen lots of privacy issues emerge. Um, absolutely one of them is the content moderation and trust and safety on the major platforms and the deplatforming. Of, of certainly President Trump, but others as well. There are um, indications that Twitter um, uh, shut down the accounts of some tens of thousands of, uh, of, of uh, people who were accounts that had been putting forward uh, conspiracy theories and, and other content that Twitter has, has now deemed problematic. Um, I think that, that raises all sorts of issues. First of all, um, the connection of content moderation to trust, content moderation to our engagement with these platforms and our sense of security and safety while we are on those platforms, that absolutely has an overlay with privacy. It also, I think, speaks to what inevitably will continue, which is the, the tech lash. We will continue to see um, a politicization of, of tech um, and I think the major platforms are, are going to continue to find that it is some bumpy road ahead that they're going to have to be going through. And then in terms of uh, technology and our human need to communicate, let's take it back to its most fundamental level. It is a fact that in order for us to create trusting relationships, in order for us to see, feel safe and secure, in society, we have to have privacy wrapped around our communications with each other. When I'm 
talking to my wife in a private way. I need to know that that conversation is private. Otherwise, it's really difficult for us to create a, an intimate relationship. When I'm talking to employees, when I'm talking to coworkers or colleagues outside in the world, whoever I'm talking to, our communications need a sense of privacy wrapped around them. Now, there are varying contexts and varying degrees of privacy that we need for those communications. Some of them are so sensitive as to require some level of, sure, encryption or security. Um, uh, not for nothing, but it was not soon after the advent of the written word that we found uh, things like ciphers and seals and trusted messengers emerge. And that's because human beings need the ability to communicate in, in ways that in, uh, generate trust. We have people that we need to create uh, relationships with and, and those need to generate trust. So whether we end up with end-to-end -end encryption. It's notable that WhatsApp is in the news right now and, and their end-to-end -end encryption is part of that story. Whether we end up with end-to-end -end encryption on all sorts of platforms and, and some of these darker conversations go to even darker places and, and exist there. Um, whether we see uh, countries around the world start asking for backdoors into encrypted solutions. Um, all of these things are really hard to know. I would expect kind of all of them to happen. I'm sure there will be a migration to darker places and I'm sure there will be jurisdictions, maybe even the United States, where um, you know some law enforcement officials start saying things like, look, we need access to this stuff almost the way uh, the FBI did um, when we had the San Bernardino terrorist attack and Apple wouldn't unlock a phone. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah, complicated times. And uh, just like so many of our stories these days, privacy is woven into all of it. No, that's interesting. And thank you for that kind of like nice round robin of all the issues you've, you've spotted. Um, you know, for me personally, one of the things that I am super wary about, and you hear this in the podcast and in a lot of my kind of like public speaking is um, government overreach and government over uh, using, taking advantage of, of situations to give itself like sweeping investigative power. You alluded to it a little bit there with respect to um, the Apple iPhone unlocking scenario in the San Bernardino incident. Um, I worry that the that law enforcement specifically will use this as a told you so and and ask for either either proposed legislate you know either legislation will be proposed to give uh, law enforcement to require tech companies to give law enforcement greater access to uh, otherwise private communications um, or uh, for law enforcement to invest more in like. Uh, uh, ways to disrupt or take down those communications, right? I mean, it, it's a tricky space. Like I, you mentioned WhatsApp and, and one of the things that I was looking at yesterday is the top two downloadable apps in the iOS store right now, right now today is number one is Signal and number two is Telegram, right? So yep. Signal, Signal is a like non-for-profit um, donations only organization. It's, it's well funded, but it's not funded like per se WhatsApp. Um, right. And then Telegram, I think is owned by some UAE, somewhere in the UAE is, what, is my understanding. So like not a lot of visibility into how Telegram is designed or operates. And so while I think there's been like this reflex to go, let's go to the most secure place possible. 
I'm not convinced that these two organizations specifically have the resources to be as secure as we think they are because of the fact that they're not as well-funded or well-resourced, well-staffed um, or mature. Any thoughts on, on any of that? And it's just... Yeah, look, so I, it raises all sorts of issues. And, and let me start with a caveat. And that is that I, I, um, I do not um, work very deeply in the national security and, and, and access to data by national security organization space. So I, I'm, I certainly wouldn't hold myself out to be an expert. But let's just note that this moment, like so many before, is also fraught with all sorts of tensions. Um, I, I think it's notable that um, after 9-11, after prior um, uh, uh, terrorist attacks, after prior national security incidents, there has been sort of a, a move towards greater data collection, greater powers for law enforcement. And then, and then there is inevitably a rationalization or a pullback from that. And Edward Snowden certainly was part of that. Um, we've, we've certainly seen that ebb and flow um, for some time now. I think that debate will, will continue and that ebb and flow will absolutely continue. What, what I find striking in the moment that we are in right now is that it was not for lack of intelligence or data that this happened. If anything, it was in plain sight. And if there's any concern, it's that with uh, deplatforming much of this debate, moving it into darker corners, that, 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 that it's less visible and less apparent. Um, so I think there is an irony with uh, the attacks that occurred, the attack that occurred last Wednesday, and, and actually in some state capitals, so I think we can use the plural, attacks that occurred, um, that uh, there, um, yeah, there, there, was, there, there was very visible intelligence there. And uh, there, Trevor, like on Twitter in particular, I've seen and rejoiced in a lot of these, the people that engaged in the, in the, <clears throat> in the attack capital caught via Twitter. Be exposed, so actually, yeah. Actually, you know, people being like, identify this person. And then the Twitter people identify that person over time. And so I sort of, I sort of question whether the, I mean, President Trump aside, I sort of question the, the deplatforming and whether uh, what's, the, what's the ultimate value there. And uh, of course there's speech issues associated with that too, but um, I'm wary to see it completely go a certain direction too. You know, what's interesting to me about that comment, Andy, is like in a previous life, I did a different job. And one of the biggest challenges with ISIS and Al Qaeda is just that, that they move in shadows, they're difficult to identify, yeah, sure. they've got protocols in place as an organization to do like important things to subvert and avoid law enforcement. The main one is they don't use a lot of digital communication channels. And when they do, they use right. only the most secure ones, right? Um, right. Uh, they, uh, they operate <clears throat> outside of the like kind of normal and expected channels. Like the only time they are on like, or they, historically were on like broad social media was for you know kind of sweeping propaganda nobody's identified type of nonsense like recruitment nonsense but like official business if you will like only took place in the shadows um i feel like this movement is probably going to learn from the mistakes that just happened and if it is a movement um not going to take selfies while they plan their next or conduct their next you know uh, i don't know criminal act so yeah totally yeah. agree
Yeah, totally agree. Let's let's lighten let's lighten the lighten the mood just a bit because I do want to talk a little bit about um, about Trevor, like what you've done over the years because it's super interesting to us. And then in particular, we you know we both came up in ad slash marketing, and you know you have some of that in your background too. And we're always talking about how critical advertising and marketing is in the in the kind of like development of privacy as a thing over the years. And, you know, I want, I, I, we're in part, we're looking for you to validate that because you did some of that work too. But um, we also just want to, want, want to, it's an interesting story to hear about how you, you came into what you're doing and, and how the IAPP helps so many of us every day in so many different ways and mm. um, the growth of that. Sure. So, I, so a little bit of, of sort of my my professional background and and leading up to the IAPP. Um, so yeah, I'm a lawyer. When I graduated uh, law school, I started work at an insurance company. When I moved into that insurance company, I got the file uh, on my desk. Uh, my internal client was the marketing and advertising team, and that meant that uh, in 1995, I was the legal support for the first website that this insurance company was putting up. So even though I was brand new, even though I was brand new as a lawyer, I got a mile deep in internet law, online law, electronic signatures, contracting online and online privacy. And uh, so I, 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 was, I was pretty useless in everything else that lawyers should be doing. And I got, I got pretty good in what was a pretty shallow pool right then. There was just not a lot of law or, or structure around it. Trevor, it's a classic story. Give give the new guy the website. Just yeah, yeah. Classic <laughs> story. <laughs> I, look, I'll tell you, I was an intern at that insurance company before I, I got hired. I got hired after graduating. And when I was an intern, I actually brought my own PC to my cubicle. There was no PC in the cubicle so that I could <laughs> use an early version of Microsoft Word on my desk. This is 1994. And, uh, and, and I remember one of the lawyers saying to me, yeah, no, you, you can't be drafting your own legal memos on your word processor. We actually have secretaries that do that work. And so, so yeah, it was a different world, different world. But anyways, um, that led to in 1999, me being recruited to work for uh, .com. Um, a company called Engage. It was one of the early ad serving platforms. It had both um, ad serving, behavioral targeting and ad networks uh, within its family of companies. It was part of the CMGI family of companies. Um, and there I was, uh, I was corporate counsel, privacy counsel for the organization. And I certainly wasn't the first kind of privacy leader in, in an organization. Um, Harriet Pearson had been hired at IBM by that point. Um, uh, a few other organizations had put in place CPOs, but I was probably in the first 40 or 50 in the country. There, there were very few of us back then. And I worked at Engage for a couple of years and uh, then the dot-com bubble popped. And while I had been at Engage, we had partnered with DoubleClick and MatchLogic and Avenue A and a number of the early ad serving companies and we had created a trade association to help um, not only stabilize the industry, but create a common face to engage with state attorneys general and the Federal Trade Commission, all of which were very intrigued by 
um, online advertising at that moment in time. You may remember, or the history was, that DoubleClick announced an acquisition where they were going to be merging offline data with online data. And somehow this was the Rubicon, right? Like if you crossed that line, um, that, that privacy would forever be gone and damaged. Uh, it almost seems quaint nowadays, but um, uh, so DoubleClick had made that announcement. It sort of created massive amounts of, of media attention and regulatory attention. And so the NAI, the Network Advertising Initiative was created. When the dot-com bubble popped, I had the opportunity to roll out of uh, Engage and become the executive director of the NAI. So I did that. And so I ran the trade association for a number of years that um, uh, led the, the online advertising um, um, space or did the public policy work for the online advertising space. The NAI still exists, of course. It's very active and very strong um, and does great work still. Um, it, that was 2002. Uh, right around that time, it also turned out that uh, can spam was incredibly hot and had not yet been passed. California introduced a law that was essentially going to shut down email marketing in the country. It was a very hard uh, consent standard to meet. Um, also, email marketers were struggling with false positives at all of the ISPs, so they were getting blocked pretty actively, and there was no voice for the email marketing industry. And one of the CEOs at the NAI. Um, was also in, in the email marketing business and so asked uh, for the NAI to pick up that space. So we created the ESPC, the Email Sender and Provider Coalition, and that became the Email Marketing Trade Association. So I ran that as well. Um, and then the IEPP was looking for an executive director part-time. And uh, so I picked that up and I ran all three for seven years or so wow. until 2009, 2010. And then the IEPP was just getting so big, so was the NAI and the ESPC that um, I, I had to I had to pick one, and uh, chose the IEPP. And so from yeah, 300 members when I first came in to 65,000 globally now, the uh, the organization's grown quite a bit. What year was that when you joined? Uh, I joined the I, I this is I'm in my 18th year 19th year I just had my 18th anniversary with the IEPP Congratulations. so it was yeah 2002 that I uh, started with the IEPP when you, Andy what were you up to in 2002 Andy in 2002 I was teaching tennis on Martha's Vineyard <laughs> I was a semi-college dropout about to Between join jobs. <laughs> and then I, I was, now you're making me feel old guys I was, a, I was taking a break I'm pretty sure that was my break it might have been 2001 but I, I was either taking a college break or just getting back like it's just yeah. sad sad yeah well I was trying to decide if I should go to law school <laughs> and and I guess you know being at the beach and playing tennis was helping me figure that out <laughs> <laughs> Worked out. Uh, well, well, Trevor, when you were at the NAI, did you did you, did you all write the code, or did that come later? Yeah, no, we had an early version of the NAI code. So, I, and and to be really clear, before I came on as executive director, um, people like Christine Varney and others um, helped to develop the first version of the NAI principles. Um, and then we certainly worked on them after that point, um, did some work on sensitive data and health data in, in the NAI. We also worked on the Web Beacon standard. Um, 
So uh, that was uh, one of the things we did. We also actually did some uh, work in Europe and it was my first exposure to advocacy and policy work in, in the European Union in Brussels on um, one of the early versions of the telecom directive which was going to create an affirmative consent standard for every cookie on, uh, on a web page. And uh, so I spent a couple of weeks in Brussels going office to office, talking to members of European Parliament and actually showing them what their local newspaper would look like from their hometown if there was this cookie standard uh, put in place. It seems like, um, and we, we, we had Jules on and we talked about this too, it seems like in, in this space in particular with cookies and ad tech, it's the more things change, the more they stay the same. Having all of these same issues come up and come up and we like juke and jive, like dodge. And like, do you think, do you think we're just sort of in a holding pattern until there's an online privacy law and we, and we kind of have, yeah. we have CCPA kind of pushing things, but like, do you feel like we, we're kind of at that moment now? Or soon? Mm, well, first of all, let's call out Jules Polonetsky because I, I probably should have mentioned his name. He and I were hired uh, the same month. Uh, I was at Engage, which was the number two ad network at the time. He was at DoubleClick, which was the number one ad network at the time. And Jules Polonetsky <laughs> and I have, uh, have been very close friends uh, for 20 years now. And he is a phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal leader in our space. So uh, anything that I say that's inconsistent with Jules, it's just because I'm not as smart as him. Um, uh, but Jules is um, really an, an amazing leader. Then on to um, the Groundhog Day reality of, of some of the online privacy debates. And I think specifically when I said Groundhog Day, the issue of cookies and online advertising, that's the space where I feel like it's the most Groundhog Day-ish of any of the spaces that we're in. 20 years ago, Jules and I were talking to regulators and policymakers around the world about appropriate cookie standards. In Europe today, in the United States today, we are talking, not we, the IEPP doesn't do advocacy, but our members, the community is talking to regulators about appropriate cookie standards. And guess what? We still don't know, like if you try to parse what the common position is in Europe right now with regards to cookie standards, it's really hard because differing data protection authorities have slightly different approaches, it would seem. Even though, as an example, the CNIL in France um, just recently brought down some pretty significant fines against Google and Amazon um, for cookie non-compliance. There is a Groundhog Day aspect to that. And I think what it speaks to is as much a rock in a hard place problem, which is that the regulatory standard that is out there, if you read it in a plain reading, whether it's GDPR, the e-privacy uh, directive, whatever it might be, even some of the data protection authority interpretations, there's a pretty clear interpretation that you can come away with that, um, from that with. But when you try to apply that in the real world, either from a, um, a systematic perspective, an operational perspective, or from a user experience perspective, it does not work. That dog don't hunt. And, and so we have been stuck in 
this, this rock and hard place problem where the regulators, the advocates, the policymakers even adopt standards that when you try to interpret them into the reality of operating an online business, um, it simply does not function. And we have not yet been able to reconcile that. Uh, we have not yet been able to reconcile that and those debates are still raging. And Andy, to your question, I don't think it's a lack of law um, because we've got the GDPR in Europe, we've got the e-privacy directive and may soon have an e-privacy reg. We've got lots of regulators giving us opinions. I don't think it's a lack of law. Um, I think it's this rock and hard place uh, problem. And frankly, my expectation would be that we will continue to see differing levels of compliance, differing approaches, you know, a, a really, um, a, a really complicated and risk-filled environment until, until either on the one side business comes to some kind of conclusion as to what the best practice is and, and adopts it consistently, or alternatively, the regulators get so serious that they shut the whole damn thing down. And, and of course, that's a pretty terrible outcome as well. So, so, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a challenging space. I think we're gonna see the same kind of issues in global data transfers um, in the wake of the Schrems II decision last year that um, there just are not good answers. And until we get better interpretations, I think we're in a tough place. I've got to just change gears here on something that I think is uh, equally important to like the regulatory and legal developments and how we're adapting to that is kind of like two emerging issues that I see really coming to the forefront at the same time. And one is like privacy is a luxury, right? Whereas you can pay to opt out of, you know, behavioral data collection or having your data monetized. Um, and two, like the bias and discrimination issues in uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, automated decision-making systems, and how privacy intersects with that issue, um, and how unmar uh, traditionally marginalized groups and underrepresented groups may be underrepresented in the model data that's being used to train these models, and therefore the implicit bias or the bias being built into the systems. Um, I raise those two points to make my actual uh, to ask my actual question, which is one of the other things I observe being a person of color in our practice area in our profession is the still tremendous need to increase diversity within mm. our ranks um, and how important that is to solving the two problems or to addressing the two problems that I just kind of referenced. Trevor, kind of from where you sit, which is really, I mean, you said 65,000 members and being able to see this global view of, of like our community um, are we doing a good job on increasing diversity? What any ideas on what we can do better and how to empower women and people of color and people from underrepresented groups in our profession and just kind of your general thoughts on that topic? Yeah, so uh, boy, there's a lot there. Um, first of all, let's talk about privacy as a luxury and privacy as, as, a, as, as privilege. Um, privacy is a fundamental human truth. We all need privacy. Um, and that is irrespective of class, race, ethnicity. Um, privacy exists as a societal norm in every society in the world. And so it would be a tragedy um, if it was the exclusive domain of um, those with means to achieve some form of digital privacy. 
Uh, Julia Engwin and others have done some pretty phenomenal work on this and have shown that it's actually really hard to um, achieve digital privacy and that it can be expensive and it does require um, higher levels of education, wealth and other things. And so, yes, we have a problem right there. And I, I think you're absolutely right, Pedro, to highlight the fact that it has um, some, some class overlays, some racial overlays that are, that are deeply problematic that we need to keep working on. Privacy cannot be um, the exclusive privilege of, of the privileged. Um, th so that's the first thing. Second thing, with regards to AI and other things, you know, we've, we've touched on some things that are parallel to privacy already. We talked about content moderation. Now you raised AI um, and privacy kind of sits between them. All of them speak to a sense of trust and safety in the digital economy. And I think they are all very much related and critical. And what we are seeing emerge is a sense of professionalism, a sense of intellectual focus, academic focus, inquiry into how do we preserve trust? Because as we engage with the digital economy, if we don't trust it, if we don't trust it, um, it will never achieve its full uh, realization, its full potential in, uh, in societies around the world. I often look back historically to the Industrial Revolution. When the Industrial Revolution emerged, there were so many societal consequences that came about because of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, in many ways, public education, the sense of a childhood, the idea of a weekend, labor standards, um, industrial safety standards, environmental standards, women's suffrage, women's rights, all of these things emerged from the Industrial Revolution as we started to tackle the consequences of industrializing society. We are in the first 25 years of the digital revolution and privacy, content moderation and safety, ideas of di uh, digital ethics, data ethics, ethics in AI. Those are the societal issues that have emerged first and foremost as we've tackled this new revolution, this digital revolution. And uh, I don't think it will be work that is completed in my lifetime. It will be the work of generations, just like we are still dealing with labor issues, environmental issues, women's rights issues, pay equity issues in the workplace, racial equity issues as a result of the industrial revolution. Um, and that's 250 years later, we will still be dealing with these issues and managing and, and working in them. What it does mean is for privacy professionals, content moderation professionals, um, uh, AI and data ethics professionals, there's a lot of work ahead and a lot of job security. Now, let me uh, speak to the issue of diversity in the field of privacy and more broadly in the digital economy. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a place that we need to do more work. Um, I am very proud of the fact that within the IEPP, um, our membership is almost exactly 50-50 male and female. And that as we have researched our field, it really does seem that there is parity um, from a gender perspective within our field. On the other hand, when you go to our conferences, they are predominantly white. And um, uh, it is, um, it's a problem that um, black indigenous people of color uh, are not as uh, represented as perhaps uh, the population otherwise should suggest. Um, 
one of the interesting things about this challenge is that there's actually a privacy and data issue that we have to overcome. And that is, I can't tell you today what percentage of our membership is, is Black, is uh, Latino, Latina, is, is uh, people of, uh, com are, are people of color, because in many jurisdictions, I can't get that data, um, that there are uh, barriers for me to get that data. With that said, at the IEPP, we're certainly looking at this. Um, we're working on this. Uh, our board created a diversity committee last year and came up with a number of recommendations. We'll be rolling them out um, earlier this year to not only ensure that within our professional group, within our professional structure, we have uh, um, solid rep representation from Black, Indigenous, and people of color, um, but also that the pathways into our profession um, are wide and well lit for, um, uh, for diversity and inclusion so that we are a, um, a clear destination. And uh, I think that's, that's gonna be, again, the, the work that goes on for a long time after I'm gone, but, um, uh, but we're embracing it and we certainly need to do more. If, you, if, if strides can be made there, um, it'd be pretty interesting because the IPP already has so much global diversity uh, that that would be very amazing if if we uh, if those those strides are made too it'd be a really interesting um, set of people and when we can all return to a room together even more amazing to to you know meet with and and get get to know people we miss that here here we miss that yeah totally agree and I think the IAVP by the way which for me ten whatever twelve years ago when I first joined was my avenue to figure out how to do this. And I'm extremely grateful to the IAPP. And you mentioned Harriet Pearson earlier, Harriet Pearson specifically too, who took a meeting with me 10 years ago or whatever at some noisy bar in DC. And I didn't realize who she was. I knew she was an important figure, but I didn't realize she was like the first and the foremost. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, <laughs> you know, her kind of mentoring me, if you will. And, um, and then um, the IAPP, and me being able to use the resources available even back then uh, to figure out how to do all this is why I work at Facebook. I'm confident about this. Like just, uh, yeah. And like me being involved in the IAPP over the years, which I have been on advisory boards and panels and whatever, I met Andy through the IAPP. Like these are the things that the IAPP has done for my career as a first generation lawyer coming from South Florida that doesn't have a super robust privacy community. I, there's no way I could have kind of had the career that I've had, but for the resources provided to me by the organization. So I'm very grateful in that way, Trevor. And I think it, it's a great vehicle for people who are coming from backgrounds where, um, uh, you know, you don't have uh, people to your left and your right that kind of understand what you're trying to do. Um, you can meet those people here. So, um, yeah. or at IPP, uh, and I don't mean you, just that conference. Did you, in, did you envision that? when you joined, like when you joined up almost 20 years ago, did you, you must have had a vision in your mind for like, you made a choice. I didn't know about this. Yeah. When you said it. Yeah, look, look, I'll, I, 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 so I'll tell you the, 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 the flat truth on that. Um, back in 2002, I, I took the IEPP job. And like I said, I think we had 300 members, maybe 380 members, something like that. And I think we had just over $30,000 in the bank. Wow. And I remember telling my wife, Look, I'll take this job 
for a little while, I'll network like hell and I'll get a job as a CPO maybe. Um, I was seriously looking at the possibility of taking a job as a high school, high school history teacher uh, because it had benefits and, and I had two young kids and we needed benefits. Um, but I, I went to my first, um, actually I'd been at the first two IEPP summits that had occurred. I'd spoken as executive director of the NAI there, but the first summit that I ran, I, I went to it and I stood up at the very beginning um, to introduce the conference to welcome everyone. And I think we had 200 people in attendance. That's how big the, sh the show was back then. And I said, guys, we are a profession look around, you are part of a profession. This is an emerging profession and we need to recognize ourselves in that way. And so I think from a very early start, I had this, this idea, this vision that, that we could kind of puff up our chests and stand straight and say, look, we're, we're a profession. This is a new digital economy profession. And yeah, it's tiny now, but the only direction that this can go is upwards. And um, and so certainly, I, I, look, I, I'm, I'm always astonished by the growth of the IEPP, by the growth of, of our membership around the world. But th I think there always has been a sense that, um, that this, uh, yeah, that this is a profession. And uh, Pedro, I just have to tell you how much I love the story of Harriet Pearson uh, taking a meeting with you. Um, first of all, man, did you score big with that meeting? <laughs> Uh, because Harriet is absolutely the real deal. Um, but, I, but I love those types of stories within our profession because they, they're everywhere within our profession where somebody had a meeting, somebody said you should talk to, somebody did something that got someone onto a path. And, um, and there are just thousands of those stories within the profession. And um, it's one of the things that makes me really proud. I, I do believe that the profession of privacy, our community, actually has a quality to it that is somewhat unique. Um, and I think the IEPP has been a part of that. We have sort of created the culture of our profession. And it's one of the things that I'm really proud of. We are way more collaborative than, than other professions. We are way more cordial and, and familial than, than other professions. And that's, uh, that's a really cool thing. I think one of the biggest uh, reasons why that is, Trevor, is kind of the IAPP's uh, consistent non-advocacy approach on issues, mm. right? Like it's very, <clears throat> you know, uh, that makes it a more open forum for people on different sides of the issues, right? Which within yeah, sure. the same profession. So I think it's a yeah. great characteristic and I'm glad you guys have cultivated that because you can kind of trust what you're reading because you know it's not coming or reading or participating in or whatever because you know it's not coming from a you know some sort of policy position right. neither here nor there. with that said though there have been some policy positions which i think were appropriate and um and you know usually on really big picture issues um so i think you guys have found the perfect balance and you should keep it up it's good yeah compared that was especially a, compared that to other professors. well that was a strategic call early on to be sure uh, that we decided we're not a trade association and we're not going to take policy positions. We don't want to try and pick a winner on some of these debates. Um, the way we describe it is that we like to be the big tent and uh, we don't pick sides in the fight, um, but we certainly like to bring all the participants into a space where they can have an honest dialogue about that. And as a result, 
academics, advocates, industry, regulators, they have all found within the IEPP a comfortable place to engage. Um, I, I'm certainly very proud of the fact that we have regulatory bodies around the world, data protection authorities, enforcement agencies in the US and Canada and elsewhere that join organizationally the IEPP. So that, you know, as, as much as Facebook is a member of the IEPP, so too are many of the enforcement bodies around the world. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. I think it's, um, it creates a safe space for people to not know the answer to stuff because what we deal with is so confusing and complex sometimes. And we deal with changing technology all the time that it creates, as you said, Trevor, a big tent where we can have honest conversations about how hard this stuff is um, yeah, sure. and how complex it is. And um, I remember being at a, at a summit like oh, maybe three or four years ago around, around GDPR launch type time. And, uh, a couple regulators on stage, maybe someone from France or something. And the question was, there was a question sort of posed out there about like, when you get sort of a forget request, should you retain any data that showed that you effectuated that request? And I remember the person, you know, from the, from the, the DPA basically saying, you know, uh, well, I think you need to do your best to be practical. <laughs> and, and yeah, not, right. But it was very clear that they felt safe enough to answer, to kind of answer that question, like you have to do what you think is the right thing with respect to your sure. organization. And that, that's uncommon, I think. That's pretty uncommon. Yeah, yeah. Let me give one more shout out because I, since, we're, since my, my, my Harriet story is, I, I love it. And we got to get Harriet on here, uh, Andy, um, like ASAP. Um, but over at the beginning of the pandemic, so this would have been like March, I spoke on some virtual panel, I don't even remember. Um, and a young uh, recent law grad named Nicole Saken was, uh, was listening in the audience and I see her smiling, so this is good news. And she was listening and um, she reached out to me and said, hey, I'm interested in this profession, you know, really cool, you know, really cool stuff on the panel. I can't find a job. And the leads I had all disappeared because of the pandemic. And so we jumped on the phone, we had a great combo. And one of the things I told her was, to reach out to the IPP for help, um, you know, networking, figuring out who's hiring, what what kind of things, and to look outside of like traditional go to a law firm or go you know uh, go be a law clerk or whatever type roles. Um, she did that, and guess where she works? She worked <laughs> at the IPP. Okay, and she's excellent. Okay, and so like shout out to you guys for recognizing talent. Um, I think she is going to be an excellent leader in our field over the years. And I'm glad that she's cutting her teeth with you guys. So Trevor, my, I guess, shout out to you guys for hiring her. And also like, this is my public request for you guys to uh, like propel her because I think she's going <laughs> to Well, so, I, so let me tell you, I, so Nicole came in and is part of something pretty special at the IEPP actually. Um, a uh, number of years ago now, eight years ago, I guess it was, uh, Dr. Alan Weston passed away. Alan Weston, of course, is one of the intellectual forefathers of the field of information privacy. In 1967, he wrote the book Privacy and Freedom, which really set the groundwork for much of our thinking about information privacy as it exists today. And Alan Weston was an early founder of and engaged with the IEPP and certainly was a friend and mentor to me. Um, when Alan passed away, um, 
we had worked with him prior to his death from cancer, um, he donated his entire professional library to us. So um, just not too far from where I'm sitting right now, um, all of his books from Columbia Law School um, are in a library that, that we've preserved. And to recognize him, we created the Weston Research Center. And as part of that, every year we bring in two post-grad research fellows. So we have two up-and-coming uh, privacy professionals that have just recently graduated. They come and work with us for a year. They report up through Omer Tene, our chief knowledge officer, and Caitlin Fennessy, who is our research director. Caitlin significantly ran the Privacy Shield program at the Department of Commerce and then came to the IEPP. So they have amazing mentorship here. We give them a year of incredible work. They do research, they publish. Um, in non-pandemic times, they go to our conferences, they moderate panels, they do all sorts of stuff. And then um, all of them have been rock stars. Um, Omer and Caitlin and I, we kind of turn on our networking uh, forces and we do our very best to make sure that they land well. And every single one of the, I think we're up to 14 or 16 Weston fellows now um, has done exactly that. And our vision was that 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, there will be this very exclusive group of people who are former Weston research fellows at the IEPP, who are the heads of privacy practices at law firms, who are chief privacy officers, who are you know FTC commissioners and other things. And so Nicole is part of that emerging tradition for our profession. It's one of those things that I think helps to establish the, you know, the architecture of a profession. And so she, um, whether she knew it or not, whether you knew it or not, Pedro, she's actually tapped into something really powerful and she's doing great work. So great. I have every expectation she's gonna be a rock star. That's a great story and great stuff. And Isn't that the best? Yeah. Um, and thanks for mentioning Alan too, by the way, who um, I got to briefly meet many years ago uh, by chance as well. God, man, I'm kind of, I'm feeling pretty lucky right now. Yeah. Um, I actually <laughs> sat next to him at some pole dunk conference. I had no idea who he was, by the way. And he's just an older guy. We just started chatting it up. And he sent me a signed copy of his book, which I have upstairs. And um, oh, wow. he's, I mean, he is who he is. He's the, he's yeah. the actual godfather. So that was, <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned him. And I'm glad this fellowship is named in his honor. That is well-deserved. Yeah. We're going to say, thank yeah, well, hey, we're going to say, thanks. Take, yeah, you have a, a lot parting parting comment. Uh, for yeah, yeah, no, just just uh, just I, 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 to reinforce the idea that Alan Weston really was a, a foundational figure for us. And to extend it one step further, late last year in celebration of our 20th anniversary, we announced the Weston Scholars Program. So Nicole is a Weston Research Fellow. We now have what we call the Weston Scholars Program. We know we're gonna need tens of thousands of privacy professionals in the future. And so we are working with uh, higher educational institutions around the world, law schools, computer science schools, business schools. And if they are teaching privacy or data protection, we have created an award, the Weston Scholar Award. They get a thousand dollars, euros or pounds, whatever is appropriate. They get a copy of Privacy and Freedom from Alan Weston, um, and they get a nudge to join the privacy profession. Our expectation is we'll have 
between 100 and 150 of those schools receiving awards every year. So we're going to be sending out some significant cash to create future generations of privacy professionals. And we felt that was not only a great recognition of, of Alan, of, of Dr. Weston, but also a great way for us to celebrate our 20th anniversary. Love it. Cool. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we hope to see you in person very soon. Uh, yeah. Don't know when that'll be, but we, we hope for that. Sunglasses on. Sunglasses on or it's not happening. <laughs> exactly. All right. Exactly. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, guys. You sign off. Yep. Thanks, man. Hey, guys. That was great. Thanks. Awesome. That was really good. Yeah. Thanks, Trevor. Really appreciate it, man. Take care. All right. You too.